Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Thanks, Mark. <clears throat> and uh, that video there was, uh, Kirk worked on that, put it together this week. It's meant to be a big thank you to all of our volunteers and families who helped out to put on the Easter Fest. It was a great time this year and um, hopefully maybe something that we'll look forward to doing again. Especially want to thank our uh, Maddie Boltinghouse, our children's director. She was the one that put all this and coordinated everything together. Uh, Harold Bradford and our deacon team was all out there. I think Daniel had all of our youth kids helping out with games and just all the activities that you saw. It took many, many hands. People showed up to the Easter Fest who just came with their kids and, and saw somewhere that they could jump in and help out, and they just went right in there. And so thank you for doing that. Uh, big thanks to Jim Specht and Mark Nunley, who put together that shiplap little picture board that we had. That's going to come out again on Mother's Day and graduation day, and you'll be so sick of seeing that shiplap board after a time. It's going to be great until that, until that comes. We're just going to use it and uh, want your families to engage in some photos and uh, use that for community building and, and just some great relationships and avenues to capture moments of, of community life here at TBC. Wanted to remind you guys that we do have prayer calendars in the foyer at our welcome desk. Uh, April's prayer calendar is out, and, and at the very top of it, it says, because he lives, we're praying all of these specific verses through the month. And today's verse is, comes from Romans 8, 34. Uh, that there is, there is no trial, that we do not stand condemned. Nobody can bring a charge against God's elect because Jesus Christ lives. Um, join with us as, as we unify in prayer. Take one of those with you as you go this morning. Don't forget to put it in your Bible. And again, that's just a, a way that you can engage with TBC in, in a very needed and powerful ministry to pray um, for our church family and for our families and, and just for unbelievers to hear the gospel and and trust Christ. So, so thank you guys for being a part of that. Um, we're in Galatians chapter 2 this morning and continuing our sermon series in Galatians. Now, whether it's the, the school playground, maybe the government, or a business organization, I, I wonder if how many of you guys have ever thought of this before. Usually there's, there's a dynamic going on when people are involved in any organization, in any group that you would ever have. Have you ever noticed how there's some leadership structure, but behind the state, for instance, there's always the deep state? And they're the ones that really have the power. They're the ones that are really making all the decisions, right? Behind the curtain is the wizard. He's the guy that's talking, and he's the one that's controlling and, and directing everything else. Uh, perhaps you've learned this the hard way by crossing lines that you didn't even know existed, and you threatened the powers that be. Perhaps you've spent time on the outside, and you've tried to work your way into the inside to get this privileged place of power. Perhaps you yourself are a power broker in an organization over many people and, and groups. I don't know what the situation is, but I can assure you that whenever people are involved, if there is a group, an organization, a society, a school, a business, whatever it might be, you will find what C.S. Lewis calls the inner ring, the real 
power brokers, the real decision makers. What is the inner ring? Well, for one thing, there's really no formal entry into the inner ring, and and there is no formal expulsion either. Most people on the outside of the inner ring are trying to work their way in, and they might think they're in the inner ring, but in actuality, they're not in the inner ring, which is always very funny for the people who are inside the inner ring. A lot of people are on the borderline. In high school, it's the cool kids. In business, maybe it's the executive council. I don't know. But today, I want to talk about dynamics of the inner ring, and specifically, not just what the inner ring is or or not just what it does effectively. I want to talk about the desire that all of us are probably going to face at some point in time in our life or another, the desire to be inside the inner ring. C.S. Lewis has an essay, and he calls it The Inner Ring. You can find it in his book, The Weight of Glory, in the Christian Classics uh, series there. And here's what he says. I want to take some time. This is a lengthy quote, so bear with me. He says, the longing to be inside takes many forms, which are not easily recognized as ambition. We hope, no doubt, for tangible profits from every inner ring we penetrate, power, money, liberty to break the rules, avoidance of routine duties, evasion of discipline, but all these would not satisfy us if we did not get, in addition, the delicious sense of secret intimacy. Lewis continues. The desire for the inner ring is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. Unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your entire life. From the first day on which you enter your profession until the day when you are too old to care. And then he offers somewhat of a caution or a warning. He says this, if you do nothing about it, the inner ring, if you drift with the stream, you will, in fact, be an inner ringer. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2. We are in a context here as we continue our sermon series in, in what I've entitled Galatians as Gospel Matters. We are in a section that is all about Paul defending his apostleship. And false teachers were guilty of a logical fallacy when it came to the life of the Apostle Paul and what they were trying to do to his ministry. It's called an ad hominem. Have you ever heard of this before? If you're trying to to pull an ad hominem, you are trying to discredit the messenger in in effect to discredit his message. You don't want to deal with the facts of the message. You don't want to deal with the facts of a situation. But if you can discredit the person, perhaps you can discredit his message. And it's called an ad hominem. Paul refuses to be three things as these false teachers are trying to discredit his ministry and his apostleship. He refuses to be, number one, a people pleaser. This is what we looked at last time. Number two, a power grabber. This is what we'll look at this week. And number three, a political player. Paul is an apostle of Christ who refuses to be three things, a people pleaser, a power grabber, or a political player. And let me just stop right here if, uh, if Big John... Flanagan was here, here's what he would say to you guys, and I want to say it effectively. He would say, please take note. This is serious business in a church. 
This is not something to glance over. This is not something to fly through as we're reading these autobiographical sections of the Apostle Paul. This is serious for ministers of the gospel and for any church that would ever exist if you have a group of people coming together to form what we would call a local church. Last week, here's what we saw. We saw that Paul's authority was not based on his credentials. Paul's authority was based on his call from God. We also saw that his authority had nothing to do with his relocation. It had everything to do with his transformation and the call that God had put on his life. Paul didn't immediately go up to Jerusalem to meet influential people. After he trusted Christ for three years, he went to Arabia to meet an influential person, Christ, where he received a direct revelation from him. And he built up all of the knowledge that he had from being a Pharisee in the, in the Old Testament text, all of that knowledge came to be understood now through the lens, the person, and the work of Jesus Christ. DTS has an awesome doctrinal statement. It says this, no portion of scripture in the Old Testament or the New is rightly or correctly understood until it leads to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul had an understanding of a lot of Old Testament passages that didn't quite get there. But when he received this revelation, he understood everything more fully and how we should understand it when we read the text of Scripture. Paul was an apostle who refused, number one, to be a people pleaser. Today, he's an apostle who refuses to be a power grabber. And I want you to listen really carefully. Genuine spiritual authority is not about who you know. It's about how you live. Genuine spiritual authority in a church, in your family, in any group of people, it is not about who you know, it is about how you live. And Paul adamantly displays that right here in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Number one in your outline, number one this morning as we look at power grabbing. Godly leaders should be accountable, not political. Godly leaders in scripture are called to be accountable, not Political. Look down at verse 1 and 2, these verses that Mark read. I'll just go back here. Verse 1, Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, Paul says, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Titus is going to be you know, this test case of, is this Gentile going to be circumcised when he comes into the faith? Verse 2, I went up, Paul says, because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or I had not run in vain. Now, if any person has a deep longing for power, if they desire to, to have control, typically you're going to ask two questions. Number one, who has the power? Number two, how do I get to them? Where, where can I find them? John Lennon has this famous quote. You've, you've probably heard it before. It goes something like this. If I had lived in Roman times, I would have lived in Rome. Where else? He says, today America, when Lennon was talking here, today America is the Roman Empire, and New York is Rome itself. Right? So Lennon knew that to gain power and success, achievement, significance in his field, his path was, at some point in time, it was going to have to go through New York. If that's what he desired to do, that's where his walk and his path was ultimately going to take him. And it was the same, same was true for the church. 
If you desired to have power or significance, your path was eventually gonna lead you through Jerusalem. This was the hub. This was the big center where the apostles were. This is where the church officially started, right there in Jerusalem. But as Paul recalled his ministry, he couldn't be less interested in how to gain power or where to find it. And to prove that, he gives this really short, just a timeline, a series of events. He walks through his life in a very quick fashion. He just talks about the major things that he did after he trusted Christ. And it starts back in chapter one. Actually, I want you to pay attention to some uh, adverbs here. These are temporary, temporary markers. Verse 18 of chapter one in Galatians. It says, then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Verse 21, then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Then we pick up chapter two, then after 14 years, I went up again a second time now to Jerusalem. Again, Paul is telling us a little bit about his, his sequence of events, his life story as he trusted Christ. And we learn that Paul visited Jerusalem two times, at least two times. Three years after his conversion, there was a trip to Jerusalem, and then 14 years, either after his conversion or after the last time he was in Jerusalem. Scholars are debated on, on which one is the case there. If you wanted to be uh, a power grabber or climb the ladder of influence, why would he wait three years to go to Jerusalem? Why would he then again wait 14 years after he left to go back? If he wanted to be somebody of, of significance with the apostles, why wouldn't he just go there, stay there, earn his credits, and then go back out? Because genuine spiritual authority is not about who you know, but it's about how you live. Not only does Paul say when he went to Jerusalem, he also tells us why, very distinctly tells us why. There's two, two key words here. Look down at verse 2. I went up because of a revelation set before them. Um, probably a, a divine revelation. The Lord told Paul to go up to Jerusalem. That's what most people think. Later on in verse 2, here's what it says. I went up in order to make sure I hadn't been running in vain. Y'all remember this, the movie Chariots of Fire? Eric Liddell, other Olympic sprinter. Uh, one of the other main characters, at some point in the movie, he was asked why he runs. And he says, I don't, I don't run because I love to do it. He says he was, he was actually addicted to running instead. Um, later on in, in the movie, uh, in the story, is about just seconds before he runs the 100-meter dash, uh, somebody asks him, are you, are you content with how you're performing and competing in these Olympic games? And here's how he responded. He said, contentment. I'm 24 years old. I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit. And listen to this. I don't even know what I'm chasing. Here's what he's chasing. He's chasing power, significance, and identity, maybe glory. But here's what Paul gives us. He gives us two reasons, two motives, there can be really no questioning Paul on his heart or his desire here. Paul is not an apostle that's chasing power. He refuses to be somebody who is running after significance on his own power and in his own way. 
And here's what's really interesting, too, is, is that you, me, and the Apostle Paul, we all actually have something in common. It's not just that we can all consider ourselves the greatest sinners, right? Because that's, we have that in common, too, actually. Uh, Paul did not go up to Jerusalem to make a name for himself. He didn't even go to the hub of power to, to meet the right people or to shake the right hands. Paul intentionally went to Jerusalem for community. He went for accountability to leaders in the church who were there. You, me, and, and the Apostle Paul, we all have something in common that takes us all the way back to actually the very first chapter of the very first book of the very beginning of God's creation, Genesis chapter 1. God does something amazing in Genesis chapter 1 on day 6 that he doesn't do on any of the other days. All of the other days, God said something, let there be light. God said, let there be plants. God said, and it was so, and it was good. There was morning and there was evening on day 1. There was morning and there was evening on day 2. There was morning and there was evening on day 3. And then you get down to day 6, and it is completely different. And here's what God does. He talks to man. He gives them a command, a responsibility, and he creates a personal relationship with them. Here's the thing that you and I and the Apostle Paul have in common. All of us were made for relationships. All of us were created to be dependent. And because we are created, we are not capable of, of figuring out life on our own. As, realize this, right? We need someone outside of ourselves to help us figure out life. Here's what Paul Tripp says. We don't just need God's help because we are sinners. We need God's help because we are human. God created us for community. God created us for relationships. We need people around us to keep us accountable in our relationship to God. And so here we go. Let's just stop and ask some hard questions, right? Because many are the profuse are the kisses of a fool, but the wounds of a friend is what we need the most, right? Um, when, is, when is the last time you talked to somebody? Who is, who is the person in your life that you have said, Gary, I need you to keep me accountable? Here's the sin I struggle with. Can you please help walk through life with me and keep me accountable? Can you please share a verse every once in a while? Who is that person? Who is that one person that you have given permission to wound you like a true friend? Who is the person in your life that knows you perhaps better than you even know yourself? Who is that, that person who comes alongside you to encourage you in the faith, to lift you up when you are down and to call you out when you are sinful? All of us need accountability in our lives. Even the Apostle Paul needed to be held accountable. One of my favorite theologians says this, nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. Who do you have in your life who you have given permission to rebuke you? when you are outside of God's will and you can't see it. 
All of us, all of us need community. All of us need accountability. And godly leaders are called to be accountable, not political, number one. Number two in your outline. Godly leaders stimulate liberty, not slavery. Godly leaders stimulate liberty, not slavery. Look down at verse three. But even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy our freedom that we have in Christ, if you highlight or underline phrases in your Bible, you might pay special attention to that phrase, the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. So like uh, Mark's translation, even for an hour, there kind of brings a little extra out of the text even for an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might, not be, pres- or might be preserved excuse me, for you. Verse 6, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. One of the greatest themes in the entire book of Galatians is right here in verse 4. I stopped, I paused, I had you highlight under that phrase. Paul mentions the freedom that we have in Christ. The Greek word for freedom here actually means the state of being liberated. And when we look at the book of Galatians, freedom is almost always, almost always directly contrasted with the slavery of the law, keeping the law of God in order to earn some kind of right standing before God or righteousness even before God. In Galatians, this freedom stands in stark contrast to the Mosaic Law. I want you to hold your place, turn to chapter five, and look at the first verse. This is a a verse that we will come back to over and over again throughout this study. Galatians five, verse one. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a a yoke of slavery. Most importantly, you can turn back to chapter two. Most importantly, this freedom is, is not something that we can earn or we can secure on our own power, our own initiatives. This freedom we have is in Christ Jesus. It is through him and it is from him that we are freed, not only from sin and death, but we are absolutely freed from the Mosaic law itself. Freedom is is actually very costly for a Christian. It didn't cost us anything as believers of Christ, but it cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life. He actually purchased our freedom by his death on Calvary. And by his shed blood, the word most most commonly associated in the, the theological, the most rich theological word related to freedom that we have because of Christ's death on the cross for us is redemption. And redemption is a key phrase that we will go back to over and over again that we, when we talk about the gospel. Because of redemption, because of what Christ has done for us, he has purchased us out of slavery. He has paid the price of our sin for us. And it's because of what he did for us, not what we do for him, it is because of the free gift of salvation through his shed blood on Calvary that we are redeemed, past tense. For believers of Christ, we are walking in freedom. And that was the issue for the Apostle Paul. He brought the freedom and the truth of the gospel to the Galatians, they believed it, and now they wanted to go back into slavery. They didn't see the richness and the truth of the redemption that they have because of Christ. 
Listen, I, I, I really wish this wasn't the case. Personally, I've experienced these situations before, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna go ahead and apologize to everybody today that I even have to talk about this. Churches can be just as much of uh, entities of, of slavery and power as any other group of, of people on the planet. At DTS, uh, when you go through their alumni department, they give you um, questions and answers that you should expect um, to be asked of you and questions that you should ask to other churches if you are candidating for a, a pastoral position. And so DTS boils it all down to six pages of questions and answers. Some of the questions are, are questions that you should expect to be asked. Other, other questions are questions that you should ask to the church that's potentially gonna bring you on. And I want you just to listen to this question. And, and again, I am 100% sorry that I even have to mention this, but it is, it is a serious business. Uh, here's one of the questions. Where does the real authority reside in this church according to your constitution? And then you follow it up with this question. This is what they recommend. Where is the unofficial power located? Where's, where is the real stated power located in your church? Okay, that's good. Now tell me where is the unofficial power? What are they talking about? Who's in the inner ring? Tell me before I come to this church so I know about it. That's how serious this stuff is. You know, um, this happened to me personally. You know when most people realize who the power brokers are in a church? When you cross them. When you take control that they wanna, wanna preserve, they wanna keep. And then you usually figure it out as a pretty hard fall in organizations. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Paul did something in ministry that threatened the power brokers in Galatia. He threatened to take control, and here's what he did. He preached the gospel. <laughs> Notice a phrase that Paul uses repeatedly in this context those who seemed influential. Did you catch it in verse two? I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, verse six, from those who seemed to be influential. At the end of verse six, I say, who seemed to be influential, they added nothing to me. Verse nine, when James and Cephas and John, James, Peter, John, the three pillars, who seemed to be pillars, the Greek word there is dokeo. They appear to have power. They appear to pay, have control, or they might even be recognized as somebody who has a reputation. That's the people who Paul's identifying. And that word is actually verbatim from Mark chapter 10, verse 42, something that Jesus mentioned in his ministry. Mark 10, 42 says this, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, they're great ones, exercise their authority. Not too long after that, he says, the Son of Man came to, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. Paul is saying in no uncertain terms here, he will not grab for power. Paul will not be a power broker. What matters the most is not pleasing men. What matters the most is pleasing God. What matters the most, the Apostle Paul, is not influence before men. What matters the most is his influence before a holy God. And he will not let it be any other way. Number one, godly leaders are accountable, not political. Number two, they stimulate liberty, not slavery. Number three, godly leaders, spiritual authority, their spiritual authority is perceived, it is not postured. For godly leaders, their authority is perceived, it is not postured. Look at verse seven. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who works through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised work also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Verse 9. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. We've got a, uh, a great staff at TBC. Um, We've, we've developed some really cr- close relationships. It is, uh, it's, it's just been a really good time of diving in with people and getting to know them. And actually, we gather together for prayer regularly. Uh, Scott Susong's part of these things. Troy's not here today. He's always jumping in when he can. Um, we just have a, a wonderful group of people. And so I wasn't surprised when Daniel Newberry came to me one day and he said, Jared, I know you love podcasts. I've got a podcast for you to listen to. And I was like, awesome, man, let's, let's hear. What is, what is this great podcast that you found? And, and without taking a breath, without really even thinking about it, he says to me the title of this podcast. You know what it was? It was called The Art of Manliness. And I thought to myself, Daniel, why are you giving me this podcast? Is it because I'm showing an unearthly amount of feminine qualities as a pastor at TBC? Like, are you concerned about my masculinity? And actually, we've, we've gone on, this is a, a local ministry at, here in Tulsa, I think the guy who founded this organization, The Art of Manliness, they have some funny stuff, and they've got some actually really good Christian resources about, about character and, and relationship to God and Christianity. Uh, one of the podcasts that they ran recently was they talked about a dynamic between um, narcissistic and humble leaders. They said, you guys know how this goes. Uh, usually a, a narcissistic leader, the very qualities that you appreciate about a narcissistic leader are the ones that you come to despise later on. And there's this really a strange interplay between narcissism and humility in a leader. And this podcast goes on to say, it, it actually talks about one of the founders of our country, George Washington. Now, you guys probably know the story, but when George Washington uh, did the incredible things that he did as a, as a founder of our nation and, and as leader in the military and, and just the way that he helped set up our constitution and our government system and, and everything that, that Washington did. He said that the very first thing that he would do would, if he got and he gained power as a leader is he wouldn't pursue being a, a narcissistic leader. He would actually give power right back to the people and right back to Congress instead. 
And when the, um, the king in England, King George III, heard about that, he actually got news that George Washington was in fact going to do that. And here's what he said. He said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. For Washington, for the Apostle Paul, their authority was perceived. It wasn't postured. And I want you to look at two very important verbs that point this out in the section that we read. Look down at verse 7. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel. Look down at verse 9. When James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. As the pillars listened and the, to the testimony of Paul, it was confirmed by witnesses, Titus and Barnabas. They could see for themselves that Paul's authority was genuine. It was perceived. It wasn't postured. Paul was not a power posturer. He wasn't interested in, in posturing his power. And here's what that means. Power posturing is when leaders spend a lot of time focused on their own authority and reminding others of it as well. And it's necessary to do that because their authority isn't real. It's postured. By the way, if you find yourself as a leader who is constantly having to repeat and affirm your authority position before other people, chances are you've probably already lost it. Paul is doing something very significant when we read these verses. Look down at, uh, at verse 7 again. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. At first glance, if you read that verse too quickly, and if you don't go on to finish the context in Galatians 2, you might be tempted to think that there are two gospels, depending on who you're talking to. If you're talking to Gentiles, you've got Paul's gospel. If you're talking to Jews, you've got Peter's gospel. But there aren't two gospels. There's not one from Paul and one from Peter. There's not one to the Jews and one to the Gentiles. Paul makes it clear, abundantly clear, that there are not two gospels whatsoever. There is one true gospel. Genuine spiritual authority is not about who you know. It's about how you live. And it comes from those who preach the one true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in him for everlasting life. Genuine spiritual leaders, their authority, it is perceived. It is not postured. What do we do with this text? Uh, how, can we, how can we bring all this together as we talk about a really serious topic here? Number one, admonition. Shatter the desire for the inner ring before it shatters you. Shatter the desire for the inner ring before it shatters you. Lewis put it this way. The quest for the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. But if you break it, he says, a surprising thing is going to happen. If in your career you perceive and you understand and you discover that there is an inner ring of power, of elites, of leaders, if you stop trying to get into that ring and dedicate your time and attention to doing your job and doing it with excellence, you will find out that the significance of the inner ring doesn't matter whatsoever. You'll become one of the best workers and other people will realize it. They'll see it. They'll notice it. It wasn't because you did some questionable thing to climb the ladder. It wasn't because of the people that you shook hands with or the places that you went. 
It wasn't because you stepped on somebody to gain success and, and climb the ladder faster and better than anybody else before you. No, you just worked really hard to understand your craft, to follow Christ, to be the best disciple that you could be in your workplace. And so we shatter the inner ring before the inner ring shatters us in our hearts. Along the way, you don't worry about the friendships that you're trying to gain or you're trying to get into. You'll find that you actually have true friends, meaningful friendships. They don't care about significance and power and, and control. They just love you as a friend because of who you are and the relational investment that you've given. Every organization has someone who holds the power. Every group of people has someone who makes the decisions. You have to make a decision to shatter the inner ring or the desire for the inner ring will shatter you and it will consume you. You are looking for glory in something other than God and it is not there even if you get into the inner ring, you will find yourself sorely disappointed at the benefits and the, the results of what it brings. Shatter the inner ring before it shatters you. Number two, the way to gain is actually to give up. The way to gain power, Paul would tell us, is actually to lose power or to give up power. So let me tell you a quick story. In the beginning, God created this perfect world. Everything about God's creation was perfect. Uh, he gave life and breath to everything, and he created a, a world that functioned wholly and completely according to his design and his purposes. There was a perfect relationship between man and woman. There was a perfect relationship between man and God. Everything that God put his final touch on to say it is good was functioning exactly how he, it created God created it to function. Something happened almost immediately that disrupted that. So before sin came into the world, mankind was described as naked and unashamed. And that's not just a physical description of their bodies, that's actually a spiritual description. They didn't have any sin. They had a right relationship to God. They were pure, wholly pure in their relationship to an all-holy God. Naked and unashamed goes by actually another word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We would, we would call it righteousness because man had a right relationship to God the Father. Three chapters in, three chapters into the greatest story that was ever told, mankind messed it up and fell for the biggest power-grabbing, manipulative, control-seeking action that you could ever fall for. Do you remember what happened in the garden? Do you remember what the snake said? It was the very first attempt at somebody to grasp for power from God. In the day that you eat of it, you will be like God. You will have power. You will have significance. And from that moment on, the description of man and, man and woman was no longer naked and unashamed. Now they were naked, their eyes were opened, and they were completely ashamed before their perfect relationship that they once had before God. They fell for one of the, the worst tricks and one of the worst sins that you could ever fall for. That power is something that you need, that you must have, and you can't find it in God. That you look to the cre creation or to a creature to give you something that only the creator can give. Satan tempted Adam and Eve with power. 
Satan tempted another Adam with power several thousand years after that. Do you remember how it went? Remember when Satan in the wilderness took Jesus up to a very high hill and showed him all the kingdoms? Bow before me, and it can be yours. And again, he tempted man with power. And what did Jesus say? How did he overcome the evil one? He overcame him with words from God, with scripture truths. And he was able to do something at the end that mankind couldn't do at the beginning. In effect, he reversed the curse. When mankind sought after power, they did something against God's will and therefore sinned against God and now they are unrighteous. Jesus didn't seek after power at all. In fact, Jesus was one who gave up his power. He became weak, and in his weakness, he was actually very strong. He left his glory from heaven above, and he came down to earth below in the form of man, and he gave up all of it. By going to the cross, we saw the most powerful display of redemption that we have ever seen and we ever will see. And when he became weak on the cross, that is where you see the power of God clearer than you would ever see it anywhere else. And it was because Jesus' decision to become low and to give up his power that God gave him the power to overcome sin through what he did on the cross. And when we align ourselves with Christ, here's what he promises. That we, we will be overwhelming conquerors that no weapon formed against you will ever prosper. That the same power that was displayed by the Father rising Jesus from death, from the grave, can now be yours through the Holy Spirit simply if you trust in him. At TBC, let's be leaders, let's be a church, let's be a community that's not concerned about power. Let's be people that aren't grasping for power every chance we get. Let's be people who really don't even think about the inner ring and think more about the relationship that we have in Christ because it is through him and only in him that we will be overwhelmingly strong through the redemption that's in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for his words. Thank you for his warning not to seek after and to be power grabbers. Uh, Lord, these lessons are tough, they are hard. You have not created us to please people more than pleasing you. You have not created us to grab for power from the world, you have, you have created us to gain power from the kingdom and from who you are. Lord, help us to turn away from all of the things that tell us, here it is, here it is, grab after that, you'll finally find it in that and help us turn our hearts and our affections to you and to you alone. Father, we ask this to you through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen.